morning. If you're a guest and this is your first time here or you've just come a couple times and are wondering if Southbridge is a church for you, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you took a risk of coming somewhere new and we hope that you feel welcome. We hope that our hospitality is kind to you and you're welcome to to return. If this is your home church, welcome home. Um, What we want to do at Southbridge is to make a big deal about Jesus. We open up his word every week. Our lead pastor, God has given him skills um, and training and a spirit to be able to do this well. And we are working through the book of Acts, which is a book in the Bible, and we see God doing something new. Uh, We see that he is giving his people his spirit to be witnesses for him. And this morning we're just continuing that series, the series we've called Movement. God is doing something new. He's creating the church and invading this world with his spirit. And so this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And before we do that, I just wanted to give some context. If you remember, Jesus Christ had followers after him. He did many wonder signs. He taught like no one had ever taught before. And people began following him. Some would leave him. More people would come. And there was a small group that was following him in the end. He died on a cross for your sin and for my sin. And he rose again defeating death for our sake so that we worship a risen savior and then upon his ascension he spent some time with his disciples in this new form in front of them before ascending to the father's side he gave them some instructions he told them to wait in jerusalem until the father sends the promised spirit i don't know about you but my wiring is pretty pessimistic at times in fact optimistic people make me pessimistic i think and when jesus tells his disciples there's a change i'm going to be leaving what do you think people that were wired like that would think Uh uh-huh, not so fast, Jesus. And then Jesus says, I'm going to send, the Father's going to send the Spirit. Uh, For those of us that are pessimistic, something new means change, and change means bad. (laughs) How many of you would miss out on something just because you don't like change, even though it was something good? Many? So Jesus is telling them that something new is going to happen. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, who is the same author, I believe, of the, God, of the book of Acts, we read in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, some of his instructions. He's speaking to the disciples, and he says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. I is Jesus here. But stay in the city that is Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from on high. Continue on. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. The scriptures tell us, verse 51. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. What a sight. Uh, Where are you going? Is what I thought would have been. We need you. Verse 52. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Just as Jesus had instructed them to do, they obeyed. Verse 53. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And so we turn into the book of Acts and we see that they had been waiting there. The disciples were one in heart. They were praying. They were waiting as Christ had instructed. They had lost a follower of Christ along the way who took his own life. And so Peter stands up on behalf of the apostles and says to all believers, about 120 of them, we need to fill his place. And so they ask the Holy Spirit to guide and lead that one may take his place and one does. And then they just continued to wait for this promised one. So the beginning of Acts 2, what we're going to turn into today, is really the fulfillment of the promise that Christ had given them. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Lord, we need your wisdom here. Verse 2, uh, chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. The all they to me means all the believers. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages or other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now this is a passage that begins one of many that people like to debate and fight over and we won't have any of that in our church. But what we see here is we see that this scripture, this chapter 2 can be divided into sections and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 and verses 1 through 4 can really be, if you're an outline kind of person, you could write down that this is what the Holy Spirit did in the believers, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to spend the most of our time here in verses 1 through 4. There's so much to say. I don't know if we can get through it together. Let's try. So, Interestingly enough, right away, Luke, who's really this physician, this smart writer, tells us some details and gives us some really 
um, interesting details, I think, right away, by telling us that the day was Pentecost. So Luke points to the history and the divine timing of God by mentioning that it was the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th. In the book of Exodus and Leviticus, you can read about this feast of Pentecost. It was called the Feast of Weeks, the, um, the feast that celebrates the first fruits of the harvest, the wheat harvest. It also commemorates the giving of the Mosaic Law to God's people. It was believed that 50 days after the Exodus, if you remember your Bible study, that um, people that um, were exoduses from uh, Egypt, those people that were slaved in, in Egypt, were led out by Moses. Well, 50 days from that day, it is believed that the Law of Moses came to Moses, to the people. And so this Pentecost celebration is a big party. It's a party of all those two things, the, the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the giving of the law of Moses. And it was one of three Jewish festivals that called for all Jewish people to make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is rocking at this time. Maybe about a million more people at a feast time than at a typical day. In fact, some people say that 200,000 people would jam into just the temple courts for these big, these big celebrations, these big parties. So there were scores of pilgrims from Jerusalem to Jerusalem from all across the world. And what we see here is that we see that the Spirit's arrival, just as Jesus said, couldn't have come at a more opportune time. Really what we see here is that the Spirit's arrival is all about God's perfect timing on display. If you're with us throughout Christmas, we talked a lot about God's perfect plan, is His timing, how His timing can be trusted. Sometimes we doubt it because it's not our timing, but He's God and He's good at being God. And His timing is perfect, impeccable. Look at verse 2 again. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Verse 2 tells us about the Spirit's arrival, the arrival in a new way. And Luke says that the word here that he used here was specific, it was strategic. He said the word is, suddenly the Spirit arrived. Now we've seen this before. When Jesus had risen from the dead and the disciples were all piled up at home together, maybe out of fear, they didn't know what to do, and maybe they go back to fishing and someone go back to tax collecting, they're not sure. Jesus just appeared suddenly. Does that get you? That would get me. It doesn't, the scriptures don't tell us that the, 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 the disciples prayed real hard, and as they prayed, the Spirit kind of sifted into the room through the vents, and the smoke kind of came up, and he got built up as the prayers got bigger. No. The word here is specific and on purpose. It means suddenly. Peace be with you. Hmm. He arrives suddenly. And why does he do this? Because the Father sent him on his timetable and because the Holy Spirit is free and sovereign to do so. My heritage, my religious heritage, the churches I grew up in were called Bible churches. There wasn't much of a denomination. It was an independent church. Didn't talk much about the Holy Spirit, probably because we were afraid of the Holy Spirit and for those that abuse the name of the Holy Spirit to do what they want to do. And so I was underprivileged in my understanding of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you this. The Holy Spirit is God. He's not a subset of God or a lesser God or a little tornado that dwells in your heart. That's always envisioned as a kid. Little tornado. He is the Lord. And so the attributes of God are the attributes of that He is holy and just and mighty and powerful, uncontainable. And He arrives right at the moment He wants to arrive. He wasn't brought in or sent in because the apostles willed it. Well, He's not bound to anyone's. Um, timing or their technique. He's not conjured up like a seance. That would be the opposite of God, like a genie. No, he arrived exactly when the Father appointed it. And this is done in God's perfect plan. And how is it done? Suddenly. And then the scriptures tell us what God's spirit, what a sudden arrival was like. Did you see it in verse 2? Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. This word translated wind is only used as a word that's only used in one other place in Scripture. It means blast of breath, which doesn't sound too good compared to for some people, I would think. A blast of breath. It really means like an, an unharnessed gust. Maybe you've been on um, the seaside before when a storm came in, you felt the, the wind there. Maybe you've been near a tornado or you've been by, uh, um, by the big storms that we have. It's a mighty wind is the idea of this word. It makes sense because the wind in Scripture is referred to the Spirit a few times. In fact, one of the most notable examples is in John chapter 3, verse 8, when Jesus is teaching people about what this rebirth in his life and believe in him would be like by the Spirit. The wind blows whatever it pleases, Jesus says. You hear it sound, just like they heard a mighty sound. It was like a wind. It, it wasn't wind, but it was like one, Luke writes. But you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And it hadn't happened yet, but now it's happening. The Spirit's arrival is, is like this wind, this, this power that comes from God's presence. And this is a new work of God. He's doing something new. 
And I believe at this moment, what Jesus had told them was going to happen is happening. This phrase is not used in Acts chapter 2, but I believe it's what is happening here. What they're experiencing is baptism with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say that in this text, but it shows the result. They are experiencing what Jesus had told them would happen. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and our lead pastor taught this so well a few weeks ago. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, On one occasion while he was eating with them, that's Jesus with the people, the believers, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about, and he has over and over again. I don't know if they understood, though. It's so, so marvelous to think about and so difficult to comprehend. They may not have grasped it. In verse 5, <coughs> excuse me, for John, that is John the Baptist, Baptist, baptized with water, which is a baptism of repentance. I'm sorry for my sin, not on, unto belief in Christ, but a baptism of, of repentance, which Jewish um, history tells us they experienced. But in a few days, which would be 10 from this day, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So what Christ foretold, I believe, is happening in our text. And what's happening is that this wind, this, this gust, this breath, and we catch this idea of the breath of God. And songs have been written about this, breath of God as a spirit, or this is the air I breathe. You may remember that song from a couple decades ago. Is the idea of his presence. And that they'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit is never mentioned in Scripture. But baptized with the Spirit is used twice. Once here and once in Acts chapter 11, referencing Acts chapter 1. So for the apostles, this was the way that the baptism with the Holy Spirit occurred. See, the Spirit had never been sent to remain. And we'll talk about this in a few minutes. The Spirit had been sent to, f- to fill people, but never remain with people, never to do its work. And the reason why it had happened is because the, uh, these believers were with Christ. They had God's presence with them, but he ascended, and now this is God's presence experienced and known in a new way. See, the Spirit had never been sent, but John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says that the Father will give the Helper to remain with his disciples, and the word used there is forever. It's not just a shot of Spirit. Baptism with the Spirit is that you are in him, you're with him. This is something that God's doing new, and I, I think we need to take some time on this to grow in our ability of understanding the Scriptures and what it means to know that we are in Christ. So I'm going to take some time on this for our benefit. God, help us know what is true. Being baptized with the Holy Spirit is, that, is what spiritually buries us with Christ into his death. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 7 tell us this. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read that for by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, that is Christ. And this is why we say the phrase Christians. We wear the name of Christ. On the back of our jerseys of the game of life says Christ. We are in Christ, collectively one in Christ. Baptism with the Spirit brings us who were once dead spiritually, makes us alive, and now are in Christ. We wear his name. This is why we say phrases like, we are adopted in Christ, we are sealed, we've been raised and seated next to him. This is what happens at the baptism with the Spirit. This baptism takes place now for us, post the Spirit's arrival at salvation, I believe. In John chapter 17, verse 11, 21, 22, and 23, Jesus had prayed about this right before he goes to the cross. He prays that we would experience oneness. He prays not only for the apostles, but all who will believe because of their testimony. That's me and you if you're in Christ today. And before he goes to the cross, he prays, Lord, Father, may they be one as we are one. I am in you and you are in me. May they be brought into us so that the world may believe, Father, that you had sent me. (laughs) And so what Christ prayed in John chapter 17 is starting to happen right here in Acts chapter 2 and happens over and over and over again as each person comes to faith in Christ Jesus. When the Spirit of God arrived, he arrived in a new way, and he's doing a new thing. He's making them one under Christ, his name over theirs. They wear his name. See, there's no command in Scripture that tells believers to pursue a baptism by or in the Spirit, or to be re-baptized in the Spirit to get a second baptism or a third baptism. That's not evidenced in Scripture. Why? The answer is because it's something that immediately and permanently happens at salvation. When one is sealed, they are sealed. When one is adopted, they are adopted and made alive in Christ. Have you ever heard someone say this, I'm a spiritual person? If they're not in Christ, how can they be spiritual? Because the Bible says they're dead spiritually. That Christ makes us alive. We are awoken unto the things of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the idea of being baptized with the Spirit. The Spirit does this work once and for all. We don't have to get readopted. thank God based on our merit or something like that? Wouldn't that be terrible? We don't have to be resealed, like the Holy Spirit seals us into, into God, but then we act up and we get naughty, so the cracks of the cock breaks, and he's got to come by and seal us again, put his painter's cap on, and here we go again. Now behave, let me know when you act up again. That's not how it works with God. Once you're in his family, you're in his family. 
We don't have examples of this very well in the world because people unadopt people, people give away people, but what we see, and we hurt each other, and we break relationships, and we break contracts, but with the Holy Spirit, when you're in Him, that's it. And you might hear teaching otherwise, it's not biblical. So there's no command to pursue these things because the Spirit does it. The Spirit does this work because we are secure in the family of God by the Spirit. But this account is his first arrival in such a way. It's unique because these apostles had experienced Christ's presence with them, and now he's gone, and now the Lord is doing something new. And they're experiencing this room, and this, it's like an immersing wind. Everyone is in. They're in, they're in the envelope of his presence. But then the scripture tells us that it de- describes the Holy Spirit in a new way. The wind, and then we see, look at verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Your translation would say like a tongue descended and it divided into parts. What we see here, though, is that some kind of, there was a, a, a hearing, a sound, a sound like wind rushing around, and then there was this, this vision, this tongue-like came, came down, just appeared in the room and divided amongst all the people that were in the house. And it was like a, like a flame. The scriptures tell us that God's presence was often described as a flame. You might remember in the Old Testament when Moses encountered God. Do you remember when he encountered God in the bush? It was a burning bush. You might remember during the Exodus that when people were being led, they were led by a cloud by day, like this wind cloud by day, and by a pillar of fire at night. What an awesome night light. God's presence. That would drive out fear, wouldn't it? I'm not an outdoorsy kind of guy, but if I had God as a night light, I could probably do some camping. <coughs> hmm. And so God's presence was like this fire, and now we see it again in a new way. We know that the Holy Spirit was described in other ways, that is his presence, that when Christ was baptized, we see that the Spirit descended on him like a dove. We know that later on in Acts that we, experience, we see people experience his presence in Acts chapter 4, that the building shakes. In Acts chapter 16, there's an earthquake. And so at, at times, the Holy Spirit makes himself known with visible, audible, touchable manifestations. Sometimes he does that. Why the Holy Spirit does this, this kind of things that sometimes are not at others, this isn't a very popular answer, but it's because based on his wisdom. He arrives in the way in which he arrives and manifests himself in a way that he knows is best. Hmm. And this is how he chose to work in this moment. And it's true. The best part, though, of this, this, this part here, I believe, about this fire that came over each of them, is that these tongues separated over each person, appearing over every one of them, which is a testimony that each one of them had received the Holy Spirit. So think about this. You've got the wind around them, you've got the fire over each one of them, which means they're part of something corporately and individually, which is the same today. When you're part of the church, you're part of something corporate. We are a body of believers, you might hear the scriptures say. Southbridge is one entity of that big C church. We're a little church under that. If you're a believer and you're part of the church, you're part of that corporately, but you're part of it individually as well. And we see for the first time this coming and happening right here. <laughs> that the Holy Spirit's working in a new way. And that means, this means that baptism, this baptism with the Spirit isn't just um, putting you into community with Christ, but it puts the Spirit of God in you. Galatians chapter 3 verse 2 tells us this, that we were, Paul is debating with these new believers, and we've talked through the book of Galatians before, and they're going back to their legalistic ways, which I'm prone to as well, like a way of trying to earn God's love is what legalism means. I get to God by how good I am. And Paul says, did you receive the Spirit by being a good person, by obeying all the rules, or by receiving Christ, believing what you heard? And the obvious answer to the readers would have been, it's, it's because of Christ. It's because of that belief he gave us. Hmm. So we have the Spirit dwelling within us because of our baptism with the Spirit. The Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that the actual body of a Christian, have you heard this before, individually is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the rest of that book, the rest of that chapter says, therefore honor God with your bodies. A lot of Christians aren't into that one. We think our bodies are to do what we want with them, like we have control or authority. And this is essential. And I know we're taking some extra time on this because it's significant for your relationship with Christ to know what's happened. It's essential that we have the Holy Spirit in our lives 
Because the scripture tells us that without the Spirit of God, we don't have Christ. Without that Christ, we don't have salvation. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Our lead pastor has taught this passage skillfully. You, meaning Christians, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And guess what, friends? If you don't belong to Christ, then your future is a future of eternal separation from God. That's what the Bible says. So if we're going to claim the parts of the Bible that we like, like God loves you, then we have to claim what the Bible says about those that aren't in relationship with God, that have rejected his love. So to be a Christian is to have the Spirit of God within. If one is not in Christ and they don't have the Spirit, if, they're, if they're not, they don't have Christ and they don't have the Spirit, then they're not saved from the future, future eternal destruction. But there's more to what the Spirit does. <laughs> the Spirit, we're baptized with the Spirit, and then the Spirit demonstrates that he's got power in our lives, over our lives for each one, but he also does something else. He fills his people with his presence. Look at verse 4. All of them were filled, and I take all to mean all the believers. You might hear other um, really smart people say it was just the 12, but I think the context tells us that it's the believers. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. We see the disciples were filled, these believers were filled with the Spirit. So you have a baptism with the Spirit, and you are filling with the Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is one thing, and the filling is another thing. They are distinct. Filled simply means the total control, a yielding to the indwelling power of the Spirit. Although baptism with this Spirit, baptism with the Spirit is a, a new thing, fillings are not a new thing by this time in Scripture. If you know your Bible, you would know that in the Old Testament that there were 70 elders that were filled for an appointed task in Numbers chapter 11. Also, we know that the, some prophets were filled with the, with the Holy Spirit for an appointed task, like Ezekiel, which you can read in Ezekiel chapter 2. We know in the New Testament that Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then John the Baptist himself was filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, I think it was in his mother's womb. Jesus says this, that there's no one greater on earth than John the Baptist, even the lowest person in heaven's greater. That's a special guy, right? And then the scriptures tell us that Jesus himself was filled with the Holy Spirit. After his baptism, the, text, the scriptures tell us that he was filled with the Spirit and led into the wilderness. That's not a very popular thing for Christians to think about. I get saved and now I, Jesus is appointed for ministry. He's filled for ministry. And he goes into the wilderness as the Spirit led him. I was thinking this morning, it just arrived to me in the first service. Since Jesus has gotten the Holy Spirit, God, it sounds like saying that we're saying uh, that Jesus was full of himself. Which would be a positive thing this time. Since he's God. So God's been filling people with his spirit, but this idea of baptism with the spirit and now filling is something completely new. And now a pattern for the future. See, the God the Father had never sent his son yet to remain within his people forever, yet. And let me just share this, and this might be a note for you to take. Being filled with the spirit is not about getting more of him, because how much could you contain? (laughs) He's God. I mean, I'm 5'9", so it's not about, about getting more of him. It's about him getting more of us. Now, God doesn't see parts of your life. He doesn't see, okay, you, you and I are good on Sundays. You keep, you keep your Friday and Saturday nights to do what you want to do and glorify yourself. And you just glorify me on Sunday, that'll be cool. That's not how it's like with him. As we're being filled with the Spirit, he's getting more and more of our lives, every area. Not that he sees areas, but we do. He gets your relationships with others. He gets your work ethic. He gets your thoughts. He owns those. And he fills you with his agenda. He fills you with his character. That's the fruit of his spirit. And it's always for the blessing of other people, and we'll see that in a minute. So being filled with the spirit is about getting, giving him more of us, giving him control. And that's hard for some of us, right? Because we like to be in control. Us finite, little, not omniscient, not omnipotent people like to be in control. We're not very good at being God. He's wonderful at it. He's been doing it a long time. And this idea of filling, so we've talked about baptism with the Spirit and how the Spirit's doing something new here in this text and forevermore in this filling. This filling isn't a suggestion to believers. It's a commandment. We've talked through this before at Celebration 4. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul writes to these believers, do not get drunk on wine. The idea of don't let alcohol control you. Don't let that kind of spirit control you, and which leads to debauchery. You act like a fool. A fool is someone who knows the difference between right and wrong and chooses what's wrong. The Proverbs tell us. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And Scott, our lead pastor, has taught us this before, that the language there, the Greek there means this, be being kept being filled with the Spirit. 
It's the idea of a, you're constantly pursuing and asking God to run your life, to have control of your life. So the question has to be asked, why all this spirit stuff? If we're honest students of the scripture and we want to know what God wants for our lives, why is it important that we're filled? Why do we need this filling? If I'm already baptized into Christ, Jason, I wear his name, I'm saved. Why do I also need filling? Well, the scriptures give us the answer. So grateful for it. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus already told them that this is going to happen. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the question again, why do we need filling? So that we have power. And that's the point of today. God empowers us so that we can be a witness for him. God doesn't empower us so that we can have power for ourselves, so we can entertain, entertain one another. They don't have these Holy Spirit experiences just so that we feel better about him. No, he does these things in us for others every time. Every time. See, if baptism of the Spirit is positional, placing us in Christ, then filling is practical. Baptism grants the power, and filling, click, turns it on. Without God's presence with us, we can do nothing of eternal consequence for the sake of others. And Jesus tells his disciples this. Unless you're rooted in him, you're not going to be able to do anything. Look, at John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus tells his followers the following. I am the vine, you are the branches, which is a great word play there. They receive life from him. We receive nourishment from him and encouragement. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, say it for me, would you? You can do nothing. And I take that to mean everything. Apart from his grace, you don't breathe. Your body doesn't function apart from his grace, even if you hate him. He's determined the number of your days. But if we're going to be about being a witness for him, which is what the movement idea is all about in the book of Acts, then we need his power to do the impossible. And that's what we see here coming up in this text. See, we still need him today. It wasn't just that the apostles needed him or the disciples then needed him. We still need his presence. And his presence now is found in his spirit. So the disciples had Jesus with them, the Son of God. He ascends, and now he's sending the spirit, which is what we have access to today. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been given a task without the ability to accomplish it? Think. Has anyone at work ever asked you to do something and you didn't have the, you know, the right funds or uh, paperwork or the right permissions yet to do that? I can remember when I was 16 years old, my parents bought a uh, leased a new car. It was teal, that's all I remember, and I hated the color, which means it was below me in my infinite wisdom at age 16. But I think this was the beginning of my hatred for driving. It was a stick shift, and I didn't know how to drive a stick, and I had a dentist appointment. And my, so going to the dentist already is bad, but then ha- and I have friends that are dentists here, and I always feel bad when I say that, but the tr- it's the truth, and I have to say the truth. But... My dad sent me to the appointment by myself because he couldn't take me. And in my insecurity, I tried to get to the appointment. And I can remember trying to come from the appointment. Things getting there were okay. I didn't have really any lights on the way there, which was just such a, a gift. But on the way back, I had a left turn signal. And I really struggled with that feel. That's what my dad tried to teach me. It's just a feeling. Well, how do you feel a feeling? How can you teach someone a feeling? It's that feel of releasing the clutch and then putting in, I don't know what you're talking about, dad. Can you just drive me? The frustration wells up. Green light, turn left, comes on. Stall. Try again, turn it, stall. The cars are piling up behind me. Second light comes on, and I'm just like cursing my dad in my mind. That's the confession. And the pressure comes up, and now a third light comes on, and I'm just screaming. I'm sweating. People are honking, and I just peel out. The clutch is already burnt on the way there. It smells like someone's been smoking cigars in the car. It's gone. We need a whole new car. It's my fault. I'm angry at my dad. And finally, I get into gear, squeal out of there. People were passing me in the lane to turn. Oh, I was livid. Do you know what happens when you're given a task to do something, and you're not given the ability to do it? Bitterness. Bitterness. Bitterness is so unbecoming too, isn't it? Have you ever had a friend, because you're probably never bitter, have you ever had a friend that was bitter before? It's like you don't want to be around them. But here's what's so amazing about our Savior, our Lord. He gives us a task we can't do, (laughs) and then he gives us the ability to do it. The scripture tells us that he is a heavenly father that gives perfect gifts. The scripture tells us that the gift, the spirit was a gift given. Isn't he wonderful like that? Now, sometimes we employ the gift and sometimes we don't. But why must we need filling? To be, have the power to be a witness, to be effective at being a witness. And what is that power? It's the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit's filling and power, we attempt things on our own strength. Have you ever done that? Have you ever tried to do a God-sized thing in your own strength? 
Paul talks about people preaching the gospel for their own gain, and some people still might come, come to know Christ, but God's not glorified, but only glorified by the response of the people. I can tell you what it's like for me in ministry when I try to operate in my own strength to do the thing he's tasked me to do. When I was involved in student ministry, I can remember speaking with one student that I truly loved, and he wanted to debate with me and argue with me why his drug abuse was okay. I could see it causing a uh, deterioration in his family and in his own life, and I pled with him. And the way I receive love is through words, and the way that I give love is through words. I try to speak other languages like touch and time spent, but it um, comes off really bad, like my Spanish is bad. It's the same. And so I'm just trying to use words with this student that I love dearly, and he is just trying to argue with me and debate with me. And basically he's done, but I'm not done. You want to know why I'm not done? Because in my power, I've decided I don't like his behavior. So I'm going to change his behavior by my logic, by my pleading, by my love. I step out of the, po- the call to be a witness to this child, to this student, to this loved one, and step into the realm of me trying to be God to change a heart. Can't do it. And I've tried. I've pled with people that are doing the opposite of what God desires for them, pled with all my might, bawled in front of them, trembled before them, even at one occasion in public at a red robin. <laughs> and really what happens as a result is just I'm the one frustrated. See, I'm trying to take on something in my own power to do something that only God's power can do rather than just being the role I'm supposed to be in by his power. Are you flowing with me? What happens in my life is that I become not satisfied with the result from time to time Then I lack trust in God's Holy Spirit to pursue. He's the pursuer. He's when they can torque a heart. And then I lack patience with God's timing. I want this student that I love to change now, God. And what I'm saying to God that when I try to do something that he's called me to do by my own strength is I'm saying that I'm powerful enough without him. And that's sin. What I'm saying to God when I try to do something on my strength and in my timing is that I hold all of time and all the events of time better in my hands than he does in his. And that's sin. That's wrong. And I do that. So as we walk with the Spirit, as the Scripture tells us, we walk with the Lord and obey, He continually then fills us with His Spirit so we have a powerful, we are a powerful witness to other people. Here's a question that we should ask each other. How do I know if I'm filled? How do I know I'm filled? Some people point to Scripture as every filling looks like this, but the Bible doesn't do that because it's not the same every time, and I'll talk about that in a second. I can give you the answer, loved ones. How can you know if you're filled? The answer is this, by how we live, by our worship is to God expressed in and by the things that we think, do, and say in our response to him. And filling always has a response, an immediate response in scripture and in life today. So when the Holy Spirit fills you, you'll be filled either, you may have a joy in the midst of terrible circumstances. That's a miracle. That's supernatural. It's called a product of his spirit in your life. It's his character in your life. You may have a love for someone who's unlovely, just like God loved you when you were unlovely. He gives you the ability to love someone who's unlovely. He gives you peace in the midst of terrible circumstances. Patience with his timing. Kindness and gentleness. He may give you some miraculous power like we see in Scripture. He may give you a boldness, which is the most common expression of filling in Scripture. A boldness to preach the gospel. He may give you the supernatural ability to be self-controlled. You always used to say yes to this thing, and now he's giving you permission and freedom to say no. That's what Celebrate Recovery is all about. Freedom. Freedom from hurts, habits, and hang-ups, and you're invited to be a part of that every Thursday night to learn more about how the Spirit enables this to happen. See, our prayer for one another ought to be, ought not be, Lord, give us experiences where you come down and win and in fire, or where you shake the place. No, our prayer should be more on the mission, more on the movement, and that would simply be, Lord, help us be a people, help believers be a people who yield to your Spirit's filling and power for the sake of others. See, that's the point of the passage. And some people try to amplify something that's just a description of the narrative. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? So we know that the Spirit fell on these people. He baptized them with himself into Christ, and he filled them. Look at verse 4 again. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And how do we know they were filled? In this moment, what was the evidence? There's always an immediate evidence. Love, joy, peace, patience comes out. A boldness, something supernatural as well, like this. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So we've gone to seeing what the Spirit's doing in them. To how the Spirit's demonstrated. 
The Spirit chose to enable their voices to speak in foreign language. The Greek word tongues in this context means languages. And that's why I read languages before. This miracle is not prescriptive for all believers, as some preach, but it's a description of the narrative. See, nowhere in Scripture does it say that we are commanded to speak in languages post a baptism of the Spirit or post a filling of the Spirit. And we know this. We know that it's not for all times at all people at all places because there are recorded accounts in Scripture where people are filled with the Spirit or have the baptism with the Spirit and don't do it. So we'll just let Scripture point us to what the truth says about such things. There's no mention of speaking in other languages or the commandments in those accounts. However, to be true to Scripture, this manifestation happens a couple times in Acts as the gospel reaches new people groups. So we want to be fair to the Scripture and true to how the Spirit has acted. We know that one time the Spirit fell in the church in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, and the place shook, and the result was passion and boldness. There was no wind, no fire, no speaking in tongues. However, we know in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria, people believed and spoke in tongues. In Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles believed and spoke in tongues. In Acts chapter 19, Paul found some believers, or people that were followers of John the Baptist, and he'd asked them they had the Holy Spirit. They said, we don't even know what this Holy Spirit is you're talking about. Well, what were you baptized with? They said, well, John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance from sin, well, then they believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and received the Spirit, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. As the Spirit was reaching new people groups, this seemed to be a manifestation, but it's not prescriptive for every time. However, what is prescriptive is a response. When the Spirit fills you, you will respond with whatever task and response he's appointed to you. For the believers in Acts chapter 2, when they saw tongues of fire and heard violent wind, it began it just affected them. It turned them, the Spirit filled them, and it began to spill out in praise. And this praise that was pouring out of them through their mouths was something amazing, supernatural, not manufactured, not conjured up by themselves or drumming it up. They praised God in languages that were not their own, but of others, as the Spirit enabled. So the point isn't to try to replicate this experience. Hey, let's all go to Jerusalem together. Let's make sure we pinpoint the exact same room and go and will that the Spirit comes in fire, in a, in a wind, and start speaking in different languages. That's not the point of the passage. The point is to realize that we've been given access to everything we need to be a powerful witness for the glory of God and for the sake of others. The power of the Holy Spirit. So what was the effect? All this to do about the baptism of the Spirit and the filling with these believers here, what was the effect? Look at verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation in their heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, awesome word, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Wow. Do you remember when we were talking about Pentecost, what was happening at this time, that there would be thousands of people in the city? In the way that Luke describes the regions represented, it was every known place. So when he says under heaven, it was every known one they knew, all the way from the west to the east. Isn't that cool? So the sound from this house, and I believe it was the sound of that wind, what was like a wind, not their voices yet, drew people together, and when they arrived, they were in bewilderment. What was going on here? Every person heard their own native language. The language spoken represents seemingly all the known geographical regions. What an opportune time for the Spirit of God to do something just like this. That's how smart he is. (laughs) What a specific miracle for such a strategic occasion. Blessing the people in the house, which blesses the people outside the house. Wow. Wow. But the observers, the observers here aren't only amazed by what they're hearing, they're amazed by who's saying it. Look at verse 7. Did you catch it? Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? The people, these people, the Galileans, they were considered backward, uneducated, uninformed, unqualified kind of people. They were known to have a weird way of speaking, a weird accent or inability to speak. And now they're speaking all these languages, all these known Languages, it would have been unbelievable. There would have been a total disconnect. That's why we see the words amazed, perplexed, bewildered. They had decided, these observers, that that kind of people couldn't do this kind of thing, which is true. But let me ask you this question. Who's qualified 
to be used by God? Or let me ask this, what kind of people does God use for his supernatural, with his supernatural power for his purposes? Can I give you an answer? Anyone who's willing. See, when I feel most insecure, and we first moved here in 2007 in the summer, my insecurities were at an all-time high. I'm moving to a people group that I don't know any of them with an education that's way higher than my own at 29 years old, and I'm going to come inform them as if I have something that they need. I am an insecure person, and I'm insecure when I look at me. When I look at my stature, my ability, when I look in the mirror, when I look at any gifts, when I look at my heritage, I am insecure. But let me tell you this. My confidence comes when I do have confidence, when I look at Christ, whose presence, spirit dwells within me. When I'm full of myself, I'm insecure. And when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I I have confidence in him. Who is God willing to use supernaturally for his purposes? Answers again, loved ones, say it. Anyone that's willing to submit to him. And I believe that God is willing to use you today as you yield to him. But this yieldedness isn't like you've got me, you know, half the week and I've got myself half the week. It doesn't work like that. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, his spirit is greater than your background and your sins, your shortcomings, your accent, and you have them. I don't. (laughs) Your education. Look at the people that God uses in Scripture. Why Why would we believe such a lie that we're ineligible to be used? That's man-made stuff where we orchestrate who we think should be heard from and who could God could use. God's not into that. But he uses people that are willing, and as people become willing, he builds them up for his purposes. Those that are elders in the church are elders because God's built them up for those purposes. Those that speak boldly have been built up by God, by his spirit, to do his purposes. Those that love the unlovely, those that have peace in the midst of times that are tumultuous, God's doing something supernatural to them for his purposes and for the sake of others. So what was being said in these languages? Did you catch it? Look at verse 11. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So let's get this straight. God enables people to do what they could not do for the sake of others. They were powerfully being witnesses of the greatness of God to these Jewish people who had come from afar off from all over the world to this place for a party, for the the harvest festival. And they, by chance, on purpose, run into this occurrence. Hmm. The Spirit empowers us then to have a personal relationship with God. That's true. Baptism with the Spirit is being brought into his family. The Spirit's given us so that we can build one another up. The Scripture tells us this, especially in the book of Ephesians, that we are given gifts by the Spirit to build up the body, to encourage one another. Edify is the word. But chiefly, we're given the Spirit so that we can have the power to be a witness. He enables that which he intends. You can count on that. He tells you to forgive. He'll give you the ability to forgive. When you step to forgive, he'll come through because that's a command, not a suggestion. He tells you to love the unlovely, love your enemy. Our world tells us the opposite. You step forward to obey, he will give, he will give you the ability to obey. When have you experienced this? See, when you experience this, you're experiencing the presence of God. When you step forward in obedience, as you've yielded to him, you're experiencing the presence of God. Maybe he's given you supernatural trust. You know, a lot of people get hung up when we look at the book of Acts of the miracles that were done, and that's awesome. They accompanied the apostles in their teaching. But let me tell you this, Jesus did miracles and not everyone believed. But Jesus says, let them love each other in such a way, Father, that they know that you sent the Son. So Jesus, the greatest miracle is how we treat each other. (laughs) over the big signs and wonders because Christ did them and not everyone believed. Let me ask you this question then. We gotta go. Do you ever worry about what to say to someone else when you want to be a witness? Have you ever been tricked into thinking you need to know everything theological and everything religious about every religion before you're allowed to talk to other people about Jesus? That's a lie. 
And guess what? Jesus anticipated these moments for his disciples, and he taught them in his ministry with them what the Spirit would do. And it probably just went right over their heads. And these are some promises that people don't like to claim. Look in Matthew chapter 10, verse 19. Here's a promise no one likes to claim for these disciples. But when they arrest you, huh? I'm not into into that. And guess what? In the book of Acts, it happens. In fact, before this, the promise is this. You will be flogged. You'll be brought before kings and governors, and you'll be flogged. No, nope, I don't get flogged. I pass out and never feel a thing. That's what I, I know that's what happens to me. And I remember upon needing counsel from someone because I was engaging in meetings here in Raleigh with people that had life experiences that I had no connection with and I wouldn't know what to say and let me tell you, no one can be better than me at anxiety or worrying. I could go pro at worrying. I think I said that every message. And look at what this passage says. Are you ready? So when you're before these people as witnesses, is the verse seven, I should have showed you a few more verses before that, as witnesses, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. That's exactly what I do. And what's the promise? At that time, you'll be given what to say. Next verse. Would you read it with me? For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. That's a promise. With the caveat that if you desire to be a witness for him, if you want to testify to yourself, I don't think the promise carries over. We're not the apostles. We don't maybe have a future of being flogged or being put into prison, but we do have a future of being a witness for Christ. And this promise is true, and Jesus foretold them it, and now they're experiencing it literally, right? Because now they're speaking in tongues for the sake of other people. <laughs> this is literally happening. The Spirit speaking through you to be a witness. Not to your own glory, but to God's. In the book of Acts, the giving of power was to be a witness for the gospel of Christ. And I believe that supernatural boldness was the most common, prevalent outcome of being filled with the Spirit. And when we're filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we are overwhelmed with the greatness of God. And God's Spirit takes away our timidity, our hesitancy, insecurity, and passivity, and guides and gives us courage to be what God desires witnesses. The first time I ever preached in public was in a Chicago subway. And I think it went terrible. And that's how I feel about every message, by the way. I started in John 3.16 and I couldn't remember it. And for those of that grew up in the church, like that's the elementary verse you're supposed to know, right? Even people at football games know that one. <laughs> couldn't do it. Couldn't get through it. And yet after I spoke, some people on the team that I was with had opportunities to talk with people. It was scary. And every time preaching here, and I know that every time Scott preaches here, it's scary because we're accountable to God for what we say. But don't worry about what to say or how to say it. It will be the Lord's Spirit speaking through you if you desire to be a witness for him. You don't have to outsmart your friends. You love your friends, just tell them the truth of Christ. You don't have to debate. No one's ever argued into the kingdom. Just testify to your own life. God will do whatever it takes through his spirit, through his people, to win some to him. So how does the passage close? We gotta go. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. The response really is two different responses. Some seriously asked and inquired, what does this, they want to know what's going on here. They're honest in their wonder. And others just made fun and mocked. And that's the same responses that we see today. In fact, the mocking when they say they've had too much wine, the real language there is they've had too much sweet wine, which is like saying this, these kids can't handle their juice boxes. Which is ironic that they'd say that, right? So you're telling me in your slam of these people, you're saying that drunkenness leads to uneducated speaking foreign languages fluently and declaring the wonders of God? If you're going to insult me, at least make sense. See, that's, that's how I get worked up. It doesn't even make sense. And mockery doesn't usually. Mockery usually is mockering those that are truth. So in the scriptures you see pro- in Proverbs, those that are wise, those that know what's true and do it. The fools, those that know what's true and don't do it. And mockers, those that make fun of those that do what's true. And that's what we have here. So the Proverbs of long ago, which are principles, hold true. Acceptance and rejection. Rejection is normal in the book of Acts. You start seeing questioning in chapter 4. Then you start, start seeing threats in chapter 4. And then chapter 5, verse 18, people that are professed of, professing Christ are put in prison. In chapter 5, verse 40, people that profess Christ are start, starting to be beaten. And then chapter 7, a witness for Christ is murdered and throughout the rest of the book of Acts and into Hebrews, you can read the accounts of those that died for their faith. Rejection's normal, and guess what? So is acceptance. The evidence that you're here today is 
if you're here in your faith, is that you accepted. In this account, the best part of the passage is yet to come. So if the Lord should bring next week around, you should bring a friend with you so you can hear it. We know in the next few verses that people came to Jerusalem to celebrate the harvest festival and they yet themselves, their souls were harvested, almost 3,000 of them. That's the best part. It's the best part. And Jesus was so wise when he said, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Huh? Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And guess what, loved ones? The Holy Spirit's still doing that. Let's pray. Lord, for this day, thank you. Thank you for each person that's here, Lord. We believe that no one's here by mistake. Thank you for your word. Help us to cling tightly to what is true, to release anything that is not of value, Lord, from today. Help us cling to you. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Let us be a church that is filled with your spirit. Let us be a people, Lord, that love each other in such a way that an unbelieving world knows, Father, that you sent your son. Lord, I pray for believers in this room that have struggled to yield their lives to you. They're holding back. They're afraid of what you might do with their lives. Lord, give them faith. Lord, for those that are living for themselves but also call themselves Christians, God, would you call them to repentance? Show them that there's another way. Lord, for those that are called themselves Christians but have been living a lie in secret sin, God, would you just lovingly expose them? Let them know there's a community of believers that's willing to journey with them through it. And Lord, for those here this morning that do not know you, have come because a loving friend or family member invited them, God, would you just make today the day of salvation for them by your grace. And as your heads are still bowed and your eyes are closed, here's a couple of questions for you to walk away with today as we close. How are you making yourself available so the Spirit of God can have more of your life? Every area. What's your plan for that? Where's the margin in your life to sit with the Lord and his presence in your life and say, do whatever you want with my life. I yield it to you. Another question like it is, who does God want to reach through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? God has strategically placed you here in this time and with the people that you know, just as he did with the believers in this home with all those, that crowd of people around them. I challenge you to ask God if he'd find glory in it to use you to reach people that only you are connected with. That he'd give you the power to know and do what he's asked you to do, to speak what he wants spoken in the tone in which he wants it spoken in. And he'll do it. Father, we turn to you. You are our hope. We want to be a church that testifies to your greatness, preaches the gospel and the truth, and is a light of grace to our city so that all would feel welcome to learn as we're learning. Lord, you are our life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we'll continue on our series of The Lord Wills It. And I encourage you to bring a friend with you. If you'd like to pray with somebody, our response team is up front with name tags on. They're here every week. Have a great week in the Lord.